0: File seventeen of A Treatise of Human Nature, by David Hume. Volume two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by George Yeager. Book two. Of the Passions. Part two. Of Love and Hatred. Section five. Of Our Esteem for the Rich and Powerful nothing has a greater tendency to give us an esteem for any person than his power and riches, or a contempt than his poverty and meanness, and as esteem and contempt are to be considered as species of love and hatred, it will be proper in this place to explain these phenomena. Here it happens most fortunately that the greatest difficulty is not to discover a principle capable of producing such an effect, but to choose the chief and predominant among several that present themselves. The satisfaction we take in the riches of others, and the esteem we have for the possessors, may be ascribed to three different causes. First, to the objects they possess, such as houses, gardens, equipages, which, being agreeable in themselves, necessarily produce a sentiment of pleasure in every one that either considers or surveys them, secondly, to the expectation of advantage from the rich and powerful, by our sharing their possessions, thirdly, to sympathy, which makes us partake of the satisfaction of every one that approaches us. All these principles may concur in producing the present phenomenon. The question is, to which of them we ought principally to ascribe it. It is certain that the first principle, that is, the reflection on agreeable objects, has a greater influence than what at first sight we may be apt to imagine. We seldom reflect on what is beautiful or ugly, agreeable or disagreeable, without an emotion of pleasure or uneasiness, and though these sensations appear not much in our common, indolent way of thinking, it is easy either in reading or conversation to discover them. Men of wit, always turn the discourse on subjects that are entertaining to the imagination, and poets never present any objects but such as are of the same nature. Mr. Phillips has chosen cider for the subject of an excellent poem. Beer would not have been so proper as being neither so agreeable to the taste nor eye, but he would certainly have preferred wine to either of them could his native country have afforded him so agreeable a liquor. We may learn from thence that every thing which is agreeable to the senses is also in some measure agreeable to the fancy, and conveys to the thought an image of that satisfaction which it gives by its real application to the bodily organs but though these reasons may induce us to comprehend this delicacy of the imagination among the causes of the respect which we pay the rich and powerful there are many other reasons that may keep us from regarding it as the sole or principle for as the ideas of pleasure can have an influence only by means of their vivacity which makes them approach impressions it is most natural those ideas should have that influence, which are favoured by most circumstances, and have a natural tendency to become strong and lively, such as our ideas of the passions and sensations of any human creature. Every human creature resembles ourselves, and by that means has an advantage above any other object in operating on the imagination besides if we consider the nature of that faculty and the great influence which all relations have upon it we shall easily be persuaded that however the ideas of the pleasant wines music or gardens which the rich man enjoys may become lively and agreeable the fancy will not confine itself to them, but will carry its view to the related objects, and in particular to the person who possesses them. And this is the more natural, that the pleasant idea or image produces here a passion towards the person, by means of his relation to the object, so that it is unavoidable, but he must enter into the original conception, since he makes the object of the derivative passion. But if he enters into the original conception, and is considered as enjoying these agreeable objects, it is sympathy which is properly the cause of the affection, and the third principle is more powerful and universal than the first. Add to this, that riches and power alone, even though unemployed, naturally cause esteem and respect, and consequently these passions arise not from the idea of any beautiful or agreeable objects. It is true, money implies a kind of representation of such objects, by the power it affords of obtaining them, and for that reason may still be esteemed proper to convey those agreeable images which may give rise to the passion but as this prospect is very distant it is more natural for us to take a contiguous object that is, the satisfaction which this power affords the person who is possessed of it and of this we shall be farther satisfied if we consider that riches represent the goods of life only by means of the will which employs them and therefore imply in their very nature an idea of the person, and cannot be considered without a kind of sympathy with his sensations and enjoyments. This we may confirm by a reflection which to some will, perhaps, appear too subtle and refined. I have already observed that power, as distinguished from its exercise, has either no meaning at all, or is nothing but a possibility, or probability of existence by which any object approaches to reality, and has a sensible influence on the mind. I have also observed that this approach, by an illusion of the fancy, appears much greater when we ourselves are possessed of the power than when it is enjoyed by another, and that in the former case the objects seem to touch upon the very verge of reality, and convey almost an equal satisfaction, as if actually in our possession. Now I assert, that where we esteem a person upon account of his riches, we must enter into this sentiment of the proprietor, and that without such a sympathy, the idea of the agreeable objects which they give him the power to produce, would have but a feeble influence upon us an avaricious man is respected for his money though he scarce is possessed of a power that is there scarce is a probability or even possibility of his employing it in the acquisition of the pleasures and conveniences of life to himself alone this power seems perfect and entire and therefore we must receive his sentiments by sympathy before we can have a strong, intense idea of these enjoyments, or esteem him upon account of them. Thus we have found that the first principle, that is, the agreeable idea of those objects which riches afford the enjoyment of, resolves itself in a great measure into the third, and becomes a sympathy with the person we esteem or love let us now examine the second principle that is, the agreeable expectation of advantage and see what force we may justly attribute to it it is obvious that though riches and authority undoubtedly give their owner a power of doing a service yet this power is not to be considered as on the same footing with that which they afford him of pleasing himself and satisfying his own appetites. Self-love approaches the power and exercise very near each other in the latter case. But in order to produce a similar effect in the former, we must suppose a friendship and good-will to be conjoined with the riches. Without that circumstance it is difficult to conceive on what we can found our hope of advantage from the riches of others though there is nothing more certain than that we naturally esteem and respect the rich even before we discover in them any such favourable disposition towards us but i carry this farther and observe not only that we respect the rich and powerful, where they shew no inclination to serve us, but also when we lie so much out of the sphere of their activity, that they cannot even be supposed to be endowed with that power. Prisoners of war are always treated with a respect suitable to their condition. And it is certain riches go very far towards fixing the condition of any person. If birth and quality enter for a share, this still affords us an argument of the same kind. For what is it we call a man of birth but one who is descended from a long succession of rich and powerful ancestors, and who acquires our esteem by his relation to persons whom we esteem his ancestors therefore though dead are respected in some measure on account of their riches and consequently without any kind of expectation but not to go so far as prisoners of war and the dead to find instances of this disinterested esteem for riches let us observe with a little attention those phenomena that occur to us in common life and conversation A man who is himself of a competent fortune, upon coming into a company of strangers, naturally treats them with different degrees of respect and deference, as he is informed of their different fortunes and conditions, though it is impossible he can ever propose, and perhaps would not accept of any advantage from them. A traveller is always admitted into company, and meets with civility, in proportion as his train and equipage speak him a man of great or moderate fortune. In short, the different ranks of men are in a great measure regulated by riches, and that with regard to superiors as well as inferiors, strangers as well as acquaintance. There is indeed an answer to these arguments, drawn from the influence of general rules. It may be pretended that being accustomed to expect succour and protection from the rich and powerful, and to esteem them upon that account, we extend the same sentiments to those who resemble them in their fortune, but from whom we can never hope for any advantage. The general rule still prevails and by giving a bent to the imagination draws along the passion in the same manner as if its proper object were real and existent. But that this principle does not here take place will easily appear if we consider that in order to establish a general rule, and extend it beyond its proper bounds, there is required a certain uniformity in our experience, and a great superiority of those instances which are conformable to the rule above the contrary. But here the case is quite otherwise. Of a hundred men of credit and fortune I meet with, there is not perhaps one from whom I can expect advantage, so that it is impossible any custom can ever prevail in the present case. Upon the whole, there remains nothing which can give us an esteem for power and riches and a contempt for meanness and poverty except the principle of sympathy by which we enter into the sentiments of the rich and poor and partake of their pleasures and uneasiness riches give satisfaction to their possessor and this satisfaction is conveyed to the beholder by the imagination which produces an idea resembling the original impression in force and vivacity this agreeable idea or impression is connected with love which is an agreeable passion it proceeds from a thinking conscious being which is the very object of love from this relation of impressions and identity of ideas the passion arises according to my hypothesis The best method of reconciling us to this opinion is to take a general survey of the universe, and observe the force of sympathy through the whole animal creation, and the easy communication of sentiments from one thinking being to another. In all creatures that prey not upon others, and are not agitated with violent passions, there appears a remarkable desire of company which associates them together, without any advantages they can ever propose to reap from their union. This is still more conspicuous in man, as being the creature of the universe who has the most ardent desire of society, and is fitted for it by the most advantages. We can form no wish which has not a reference to society perfect solitude is, perhaps, the greatest punishment we can suffer. Every pleasure languishes when enjoyed apart from company, and every pain becomes more cruel and intolerable. Whatever other passions we may be actuated by, pride, ambition, avarice, curiosity, revenge, or lust, the sole or animating principle of them all is sympathy nor would they have any force were we to abstract entirely from the thoughts and sentiments of others. Let all the powers and elements of nature conspire to serve and obey one man. Let the sun rise and set at his command. The sea and rivers roll as he pleases, and the earth furnish spontaneously whatever may be useful or agreeable to him he will still be miserable, till you give him some one person at least, with whom he may share his happiness, and whose esteem and friendship he may enjoy. This conclusion, from a general view of human nature, we may confirm by particular instances, wherein the force of sympathy is very remarkable. Most kinds of beauty are derived from this origin and though our first object be some senseless inanimate piece of matter it is seldom we rest there and carry not our view to its influence on sensible and rational creatures a man who shews us any house or building takes particular care among other things to point out the convenience of the apartments the advantages of their situation and the little room lost in the stairs, antechambers, and passages, and indeed it is evident the chief part of the beauty consists in these particulars. The observation of convenience gives pleasure, since convenience is a beauty. But after what manner does it give pleasure? It is certain our own interest is not in the least concerned, and as this is a beauty of interest not a form, so to speak, it must delight us merely by communication, and by our sympathizing with the proprietor of the lodging. We enter into his interest by the force of imagination, and feel the same satisfaction that the objects naturally occasion in him. This observation extends to tables, chairs, scrutoires, chimneys, coaches, saddles, ploughs, and indeed to every work of art, it being an universal rule that their beauty is chiefly derived from their utility, and from their fitness for that purpose to which they are destined. But this is an advantage that concerns only the owner, nor is there anything but sympathy which can interest the spectator it is evident that nothing renders a field more agreeable than its fertility, and that scarce any advantages of ornament or situation will be able to equal this beauty. It is the same case with particular trees and plants, as with the field on which they grow. I know not but a plain, overgrown with firs and broom, may be in itself as beautiful as a hill covered with vines or olive-trees though it will never appear so to one who is acquainted with the value of each but this is a beauty merely of imagination and has no foundation in what appears to the senses fertility and value have a plain reference to use and that to riches joy and plenty in which though we have no hope of partaking yet we enter into them by the vivacity of the fancy and share them in some measure with the proprietor. There is no rule in painting more reasonable than that of balancing the figures, and placing them with the greatest exactness on their proper centre of gravity. A figure which is not justly balanced is disagreeable, and that because it conveys the ideas of its fall, of harm and of pain, which ideas are painful, when by sympathy they acquire any degree of force and vivacity. Add to this, that the principal part of personal beauty is an air of health and vigour, and such a construction of members as promises strength and activity. This idea of beauty cannot be accounted for but by sympathy in general we may remark that the minds of men are mirrors to one another not only because they reflect each other's emotions but also because those rays of passions sentiments and opinions may be often reverberated and may decay away by insensible degrees thus the pleasure which a rich man receives from his possessions being thrown upon the beholder causes a pleasure and esteem, which sentiments again, being perceived and sympathized with, increase the pleasure of the possessor, and being once more reflected, become a new foundation for pleasure and esteem in the beholder. There is certainly an original satisfaction in riches derived from that power which they bestow, of enjoying all the pleasures of life, and as this is their very nature and essence, it must be the first source of all the passions which arise from them. One of the most considerable of these passions is that of love or esteem in others, which therefore proceeds from a sympathy with the pleasure of the possessor. But the possessor has also a secondary satisfaction in riches arising from the love and esteem he acquires by them, and this satisfaction is nothing but a second reflection of that original pleasure which proceeded from himself. This secondary satisfaction or vanity becomes one of the principal recommendations of riches, and is the chief reason why we either desire them for ourselves, or esteem them in others. Here, then, is a third rebound of the original pleasure, after which it is difficult to distinguish the images and reflections by reason of their faintness and confusion. End of file 17